Well, it's a privilege to uh, come to the Word of God now with you. It's uh, part of our worship is getting into the Bible. Worship is not just singing, but I do appreciate the singing. Worship is giving worth to the Lord and attributing value to Him, um, and He is worthy. He's really the only true object of our worship. He's the only legitimate object to worship and give value to in that way. So thank you for um, being part of the worship time all the way through till now and into the Word of God. I do want to read our text just to um, frame my thoughts. We're doing this study on John the Baptist, and uh, we're, we're called to understand a guy who was uh, notably wild and... Um, even under the banner of uh, humility and violent. Uh, it's kind of a, a wild thing to, to think about and read. And I'm going to read, but I also want you to bear in mind one pastoral thing. Um, we always pray together as elders in the morning, and one of our elders is uh, dear brother Russ Edwards, and we're just are thankful for him. He mentioned uh, by way of prayer that this week is a bit of a determined determinative week for whether he would be able to come home or not. He's been in the hospital for two months or over, and we know the Edwards family want to be reunited in regular face-to-face time with um, a dad and husband in the home. And so I'm just going to pray and uh, ask you to pray with me. I'm going to pray first, and I'll read the text, but let's pray for um, Russ to be able to come home, possibly. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for worship. We thank you for ministry. Thank you for family. Thank you for church family and Christian brothers and sisters. Thank you for the opportunity to come together in heart, mind, and soul, and to love you with heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, our hearts do go out to um, the Edwards family. We know they've been patient and have been under a great weight of pressure um, waiting for Russ to come on. We pray, God, that you would um, heal his body, give the doctors wisdom and guidance in terms of a plan for him to be able to come home and be with his family. We just pray for that. God, please, we beg you as a church for that reality to happen for him. I assume he might be live streaming right now. I pray that you'd give him comfort and joy in his heart as he awaits um, word on that. Just give us all patience. Thank you for the Edwards family and their household. Give them grace even this morning. We pray one more time for the Bondar family. We pray for Oleg's parents and twin brothers as they're fleeing as war refugees, um, crossing Ukraine, trying to get to a border town or find safe haven um, from the attacks there. We do pray for the church abroad in both Russia and in Ukraine. We thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that the church is being built and borne out as we, um, we soldier on together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this morning. Give us uh, the courage of John the Baptist this morning. Let him model courage and strength to us um, by the Holy Spirit. Move our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read our text, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house, houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, This is a text that has, in many ways, bewildered me over the times that I've read it regarding the idea of violence, holy violence, taking heaven, as the King James Version, I think, says, taking heaven by storm. It's It's a violent zeal for God. And yet when you understand the perfect balance and blend of John the Baptist in humility, he must increase, I must decrease. And zeal, I'm going to preach, even if I have to die for the faith. You can begin to put in context what it means to be violent for God. Not fleshly, not strong-willed, not pugnacious, not a bully, not angry, but zealous in strength, in the cloth of humility. We come forward for the kingdom of God, and in the times that we're in, where we're looking at world events, we're looking at families in crisis, we're looking at all kinds of needs. We need this kind of iron in our souls these days to be like the example of John the Baptist. And that's where Jesus is driving the crowds to as John has come up doubting in prison. You remember the context of where he found himself to be. He had been preaching for 18 months out there. Verse 1 says, Jesus now is preaching out there in Galilee, but John the Baptist is in there in prison. Kind of a unique contrast. And so 18 months of preaching now shut down and now he's been in jail for a month or a year rather. He preached against the king. He preached against Herod Antipas at risk of death. And he, Herodias, um, the one whom he was having an adulterous affair with, um, Antipas was. Um, Herodias got the daughter to, uh, to say, hey, let's, let's have John the Baptist executed. Let's have his head chopped off. And put on a platter. That's what John is facing. And in facing execution, he sends his disciples out to Jesus to say, are you the Messiah? So, so John is in jail, the zealous, violent prophet of God who's discouraged. And he's reminiscing. That was the way I was framing the first 15 verses. I'm going to reframe it for a preachable outline. But in general, let me just review. John ended up in jail. That's verse Um, Verses 1 and 2, you have Jesus out there, John in there, and then John cried out for help, verses 3 through 6, and then John was found in the wilderness. This is Jesus reminiscing about John's ministry and whom they found, that's verses 7 and 8, and then he's lauded as the forerunner of Christ. He's the one who fulfilled Malachi chapter 3. He's the forerunner of Christ. He's the prophet of prophets, the last Old Testament prophet. This is who we're learning about. And the question is, what can we really learn from someone as wild as John? Because Jesus 
wants to change the complexion of what's going on with the crowds. And he wants us to learn from John. He wants us to not doubt John, but learn from John. John has shown up with doubts through his disciples. You have these disciples showing up and saying, are are you the Messiah? John wants to know if you're truly the Messiah. And Jesus gives that corrective that we learned last week where he's saying, um, he's quoting Isaiah 61 and he's, he's saying the, the miracle ministry is proving and validating that I'm the Messiah. Um, verse 4, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Uh, Jesus is saying, look at the miracle ministry. Tell John what you see. Be his optics and tell him that Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled. I mean, perhaps John was doubting. He was impatient. Why isn't Christ bringing the fire judgment that I was preaching before? The wrath of God is coming. Where's the wrath? And Jesus is giving grace and he's giving miracle ministry and validating his Messiahship. As he said in Luke 4, this is all about me. He pulled the scroll and said, this is what I came to do. And so he's clarifying that and saying, yes, I'm about wrath and judgment, but I'm also about healing and ministry and help. And I'm the savior. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember all of me, John. And that's what he is saying to John. He who doesn't stumble over this is blessed, is blessed. See verse six, blessed is the one who's not offended, who doesn't stumble over this message. Believe all of who I am. But then in verse seven, there's a shift And so Jesus, who's been helping, who's helping John, not doubt, now turns to the crowds and is saying, listen, I validated myself to John, but let me now validate John to you so that you don't doubt me. (laughs) Do you see that? That's what he's doing. He's, He's talking to the disciples. He's going, look, let me validate myself to John through these disciples. And those disciples leave. Now he looks at the masses and he's concerned that the masses could begin to doubt Jesus because of John's doubts. And so he wants to correct their thinking and saying, don't doubt John because I don't want you to doubt me. John's the prophet of Jesus. And this is a important connection for you to make. Doubt happens in the hearts of many believers And we have to be careful to guard our own spirits from losing hope or becoming impatient like John was. He doesn't want that to influence the crowds. And so he's now building up John because not for John's sake, but for the sake of believing in a solid way that Jesus is the true Messiah. And the forerunner was solid in his message in ministry as he was promoting who Jesus was. Now, in all of this, We can learn something in terms of how to live for Jesus like John the Baptist lived for Jesus. That's really the the task before us. That's my preaching task. I want you to understand why John was called in verse 11, no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that is some serious high praise. There's no higher praise than saying, hey, he might be doubting right now in jail, in prison. We've sent, we've sent back some fortification there. He'll be fine. But no one was greater than John the Baptist in terms of being a prophet. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He's the best prophet. So you, you need to learn something about who he is so that you can follow in his footsteps as he followed me. Why is he called the greatest? Well, first of all, because he 
followed Jesus with holy violence. You could say it this way. That word violent can sound so negative. No elder is to be violent. No elder, no pastor is to be pugnacious or a bully. We can't be angry. We have to be, though, at the same time, Christians who have a resolve to follow Jesus, watch this, with reckless abandon. Reckless abandon. That's how you fight sin. That's how you get content. That's how you make it through what is unmakeable and difficult in your life. You say, I can't do it anymore. Reckless abandon. Holy violence. Strengthen the Lord. It's where you consider the cost and you give your life to Christ. What does it mean to be violent for the Lord? What means to be like John? Let's just hark back to the the earlier verses. John is questioning the Messiah. He's doubting and struggling. He sends disciples and says, are you the one? I think that's part of him being this aggressive believer. I need to know. I need to be reset. I need a hard reset my spiritual life and reconnect. I think that could be part of what it means to be this kind of zealous believer. Jesus is pastoring the crowds to say, let's look at John and remember that he was not a weak prophet, but he was a strong prophet. Look at the questions that he asked here in verses 7, 8, and 9. Three questions in a row. This is some good exegesis right here if you want to see it. Look at this. It says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? That's a question, rhetorical question. Verse 8, what then did you go out to see? Verse 8, verse 9, what then did you go out to see? Three questions in a row to shake it up in the hearts of the crowds. First question, verse 7, um, they, as they went away, the disciples went back up to give the message to John. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the waters to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you expect when you went out there? You left religion, you left the Sanhedrin, you left the oppression of just false, oppressive, hardcore legalism. You you shook that off, right? And you went out to a guy that's in the wilderness, somebody dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. You went out and found a prophet, right? You didn't find a reed shaking in the wind. A reed shaking in the wind would be this stem out there in the desert wind that's blowing just like our Chinook wind blew my... uh, basketball goal over not only over but broke it in half that thing's pronounced dead it's been around for a long time it was time it was the lord's way of saying can you just get rid of that now okay so but wind is strong and it's the picture of vacillating did you go out to see someone who is vacillating like oh i don't know who the messiah is is that what you found because if that's your is that if that's your perception of john in jail that's not who he is He was not a reed. He was not this doubting Thomas figure. He was not um, someone who was like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He talks about a person who's pliable, someone who's made of silly putty. No, he was a a man of God who's a martyr, uh, someone who's going to be a martyr for the faith. John was an outsider. He wasn't vacillating, though. He was strong in his conviction. He had left controlling religion. And he was the example of leaving controlling religion. 2 Timothy 3.5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. All of Jerusalem was coming out of religion. 
And John's persona and ex- ex- expressed um, sort of visage, it, it symbolized leaving religion. Was he someone who was a reed? No. Verse 8, look at this. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. Soft clothing would be the same word um, used in the New American Standard in 1 Corinthians 9, or 6, 9, rather, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the immoral, which is, uh, which is translated effeminate. Did you go out in effeminate clothing, the king's clothing, palace garb? Is that what you went out to see, someone dressed like that? That's not who John was. He was rugged. John the Baptist was Alaskan, let's just say it. Let's just call it out. I mean, and I know that's, that's fun to say here, but there is a sense of living here and, and doing it for adventure's sake. To enjoy Alaska, you have to enjoy um, the harshness. You have to enjoy the wind, enjoy the snow, enjoy, you know, the, the adventure of being here. To be a joy-filled Christian in a sin-cursed world, you have to enjoy the violence, enjoy the clash, enjoy the message, enjoy the shakeup. This is John the Baptist. You did not go out from religion to the wilderness to find somebody who's vacillating or find somebody who's soft. You found somebody who got in Herod Antipas's face. Not for political sake, not to reform the government, not to change out Joe Biden. That's not what he was doing. He was preaching the word of God and letting the chips fall. And it got him landed in jail. That's who you found. That's why he is who he is. That's why he's worth following. Don't vacillate with this moment. Be strengthened to understand that John is not effeminate. He's not in soft clothing. He is a Bible preacher. And so Jesus is smashing this wrong persona of John the Baptist. He wasn't flattering the king. John was not in the king's house, but he was in, watch this, the king of king's house. He was in the Lord's house. We are in the Lord's house. Whether we're in jail, in the wilderness, or wherever we are, we're in God's kingdom. We're in a different world. If you go outside of um, your harsh religion, false religion, and then try to go find comfortable religion or consumer-based Christianity, guess what? You're going to be left empty again. You want a place that preaches the truth hard, strong, not harshly, but strong with conviction and strength. We need iron in our guts. We don't need feel-good messages. We don't need feel-good stories, inspirational stories. One of my sons, I'm always like, let's watch a sports movie. And one of my sons will always say, Dad, I don't want to watch another feel-good sports movie, please. Well, we, you know, it's one thing to watch the movies, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is about being strengthened by faith in truth and being convictional and rooted and grounded. The world has fallen in sin. Believers will inevitably find themselves moving toward uncomfortable situations when they associate with Christ and his message. It's going to become more and more uncomfortable. Well, John was violent. Point two that I'm going to um, put here, I think is in our outline, is that um, John was a privileged prophet. He was a privileged prophet. And we, we find this in the next verse, verse 9. This is the third rhetorical question. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. This is the answer. Ding, ding, winner. Not reed, blown in the wind, not soft-clothed person, 
prophet. A prophet, you know, one passage in Scripture says they're not welcome in their hometown. Jesus, uh, in Mark's Gospel, Mark 6, 4, it says of him, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So you don't have honor in your hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. When you become a new believer, especially when you go home with a message where there are unbelievers, you're not welcome there. There's awkwardness or the extended family comes over and you're on fire for Christ all of a sudden. And they're like, who are you? A prophet's not welcome. Prophets are preachers of wrath, preachers of judgment, preachers of justice, preachers of holiness. That's the tone and tenor of all the prophets throughout all of the Old Testament leading up to John. Wrath is coming. Judgment's coming. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there are glimmers and hopes and, 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 and windows where you see the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to wash our sins. But it's always cast as the answer because judgment is coming. People don't like sin talked about. They don't like this kind of pressure. But this is the ministry of being a prophet. That's whom you found when you went out to the wilderness. A forecaster. A prophet is a foreteller. It's foretelling about judgment and justice. John was at a disadvantage where he knew what he knew of the coming Messiah, but he didn't know all of the story like we do. We know the prophets or the disciples of John had to be filled in with the fact that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again. Yes, he's the Lamb of God, but the full message uh, took place as uh, John was martyred and then Jesus carried out the gospel. And so John was preaching all that he knew. That's why he probably was having some second thoughts while in jail. He's like, where is the wrath? Where is the judgment? Well, there was grace coming in the cross. The judgment and justice was first going to be exercised against the Son of God on the cross so that we would be relieved of that pressure, right? We won't have to face that judgment, that eternal judgment because of Christ, him absorbing the wrath. But John was the bridge. He was born of a woman. He was uh, fully human, a man like ourselves, but he was an amazing prophet. Look at verse 9. He's the prophet of prophets. Yes, I tell you that, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. His um, his mom, Elizabeth, was cousins to Mary. We talked about that. He undertook the Nazarite vow. This is pointing to the humanity of, uh, or the humanness of, of John. Why was he the prophet of prophet then? I mean, this is almost like worship to say that he is... This great prophet, right? Well, he was amazing because he not only foretold about Jesus, he actually saw Jesus. He didn't say, go look at the one who's going to come. He said, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the fulfillment of Malachi 3. Um, which is quoted here in your Bibles. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's talking directly about John. That's Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And then Malachi 3.1 goes on and says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is John who's fulfilling this. 
A lot of times we think we've missed God's plan altogether because guess what? Life is hard. Well, guess what? We as Christians, as ambassadors for the Lord, are living the prophet's life. If life is never awkward, if it's never awkward in our conversations, if it's never awkward in our witness, there's probably something going wrong. We're not called to be consumers. We're not called to just be takers. We're not called to just fill ourselves with comforts because we live in a sin-cursed world. We're called to go for stuff with reckless abandon, to engage in the violence, in the struggle that's before us. Well, how do we do that? How do we go into this life where we're suffering violence and persevere through that? Well, my third point here is John was not only violent, he was not only the privileged prophet who saw the face of the Messiah, but thirdly, John was humble, humility. Violence uh, in the Lord's economy is only acceptable when it is clothed in humility. You see that? Violence clothed in arrogance is terrible. I mean, the Bible just destroys that direction in a person's life. It says if you're violent, you know, you'll get yourself in jail, you'll, you'll get yourself killed, you'll, you know, horrible things will happen to you. Not for God's glory, but... Out of your own fleshly ways, anger is always wrong when it is fleshly anger. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Gentleness. So we are to be violent in the sense that John the Baptist was. We suffer violence and we preach and it creates violent outcomes. But humility is the key for bringing balance to our zeal. There's no higher praise than what Jesus says of John here in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one. That's incredible. That, that seems to touch almost on inappropriate worship, like praising a man. But again, John was born of a woman. He's, he's just a man. But he's great. Why is he great? Well, true greatness is when someone is humble. And zealous. He was born in an amazing circumstance, set apart as a prophet, and he was humble. It's incredible. How do we know that this humility was authentic and real? It's because it wasn't just for John. Look at the second half of verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus just wants to get our attention and say, look, No prophet is greater than John. He's the final Old Testament prophet. He's the one that all the prophecies culminated through the voice of John, where he's saying, here he is, this is Jesus. How do you follow that greatness? You become the least in the kingdom. You follow his mission and ministry with humility. We have the full message of the gospel. We understand why we're humble. Do you know why you can be humble? Because we are saved by the amazing grace of the gospel. Jesus was coming. John was the forerunner. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. He was fulfilling that mission with passion and reckless abandon and in humility. And we follow right in that same stream by saying, but by the grace of God, I would go to hell and I'm saved by grace. It's amazing grace. And I've been graced by this lamb of God who took away my sins and the sins of all who would believe on Jesus Christ in the world. It's incredible. We're greater than John if we bow to the gospel, the least of the kingdom. This is Matthew 
10, verse 42, the little ones who give a cup of um, cold water in the name of the Lord as a disciple. Little ones. We are like children, not climbing a ladder to get higher, but going lower and lower, esteeming others higher. Not greater, but lesser. We receive this humble path. We follow the Lord. We don't become puffed up in knowledge. We, we become amazed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you realize how privileged you are and I am to know what we know about Jesus? We know more about Jesus than John did. It's incredible. That's what Ephesians chapter 3 is talking about, where it talks about knowing the love of God. Remember, Paul prayed in verse 18 that they would be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If we will but go to the Bible and bow in humility and say, you must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to open the word of God and be humble. I'm going to bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. We can know Jesus in a profound way, in a way that was greater than what John could even know. It's not puffing up, it's going down. This is what made John great, but it was setting the stage for how we can grow and know the Lord. Point three, this is uh, being humble. And I want to tie this together with the point one of being violent. I'm not trying to like just, um, you know, be confusing with this, but verse, verse 12 always confused me, and I just want to hammer it a little bit more because I don't want us to shrink away from a verse like verse 12 and say, well, I know violence is sin, so I can't really understand what is being said here. I mean, look at this. This is a unique verse to try to apply. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Luke 16, 16 is a parallel to this. Just quickly, if you'll look over there, um, John is also referenced. It says the law and the prophets were until John, like all of this build up till John showed up. And it says, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. There's a reckless abandon. There's a, there's a marathoning running towards heaven. We're not earning our way to heaven. We go to heaven by grace. We go to heaven because we've humbled ourselves to the gospel. But when you preach the gospel, there is going to be thunder and lightning. There is going to be violence. When you preach the gospel, you are going Matthew chapter 11 again. You're going to verse 12, suffer violence. Or you're not preaching the gospel the right way. You got to preach against sin. You got to talk about repentance. We're going to study tonight personal eschatology. We're going to talk about eternal hell. That's a physical, real place to be avoided at all cost. Why would I go in a reckless way to follow Christ? Because I don't want to go to hell at all cost. Why would I preach the gospel to people and it would make them feel uncomfortable? Because we don't want them to go to hell at all cost. You don't want your kids to go to hell. So you preach the gospel to your kids, but they don't like it. But you tell them anyway. You don't want your friends and family members to go to hell. So you preach the gospel and you go all John the Baptist on it. That's what I'm saying. You're not a reed in the wind. You're not in soft clothes. So I'm just go and say it. And you'll suffer violence for that. I remember being at um, Christian camp. I would go to Christian camp often. 
when I was a little kid um, in the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia where it thunders and lightnings. It doesn't really do that here. Um, every, what, four years, there'll be like lightning in the sky or something. I don't know. On the East Coast, when you know a cold front hits a thermal at night especially, sheets of rain come down and it is flash, boom, flash, boom, flash, boom, all night. And you, it's like the lightning is going to hit you because it's just right there. That's the idea of suffering violence. You're, you're, you're clashing kingdoms. You're coming in the name of Christ, the King of Kings, and you're clashing against a kingdom filled with people that want to wear soft clothes, people who want to vacillate, people who want to be wishy-washy, and you're saying, no, here's truth. Then there's boom. There's thunder. There's lightning. It's important to just understand that the violent take it by force. That's what verse 12 says. The zealous, those who are in, those who are, who are signed up, who are committed, they're coming in as an army for God. It's biastai, the violent. It's the word that's used here. It's by zeal, not by flesh. Not fighting in worldly force or strength of flesh or manipulation, but persevering zeal clothed in humility. Persevering zeal clothed in humility. It's a suffering violence and being zealous for the Lord. It's a willingness to be humble and wild at the same time. Not out of control, under the Spirit's control, but God will lead you into conversations. He'll lead you to do things or not do things that will kick things up. General Douglas MacArthur said this about his son that he prayed for on his behalf when his son was a little child. He said, build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he's afraid. One who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose heart will be clear, whose goal will be high, a son who will master himself before he tries to seek to master other men, one who will learn to laugh yet never forget how to weep and reach into the future and yet never forget the past. After all these things are his, add, I pray, a sense of the humor so that he will always be serious but never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he'll always remember the simplicity of true greatness. The open mind of true wisdom and meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. That's a good prayer. It's a testimony of humility. So humble violence. Look at verse 13. This just fills out. This kind of brings in the altar call of Jesus' sermon here. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. They all built up to John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's Elijah. What does that mean? That means you need to see through the eyes of faith that this is Elijah. It's not physical Elijah. It's not the exact same person. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah. He's the fulfillment of Malachi 3, the prophecies of Isaiah the forerunner, he's the forerunner for Christ. In Jewish tradition, they would leave an empty seat at the table of Passover for Elijah. They want their superhero to come. Well, guess what? If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, Elijah has already come because Jesus has already come. I'm friends with some Jewish people. I'm friends with a Jewish guy that I play sport with and I witnessed him and I want him to see that Jesus has already come. This is probably why my team won't come and hear me preach. 
Um, but they hear it, you know, when I'm out there with them. But it's Jesus has come. And if you have ears to, and to hear that and see that as true, then you'll come to the altar call. If you're willing to accept it, Jesus says. It's what he's saying to the crowd. Are you willing to accept this? Because if you accept John, you accept his message and you accept Jesus. That's what he's doing. Don't vacillate like John is doing in prison right now. Accept who John is as a prophet. Accept his message and accept me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear this message? Elijah was not perfect. He faced the prophets of Baal and at Mount Carmel. He, he killed them. He slaughtered them. But then he began to doubt. Do you remember 1 Kings 19? He was doubting, wanting even to die under the juniper tree. Jezebel and all um, sent message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. All of the prophets that had been false prophets had been killed. Jezebel then is threatening Elijah and he's, it says he was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba and he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under the juniper or the broom tree. First Kings 19.4. He said, Lord, may I just die. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. John, like Elijah, is doubting. He's in prison. He's under imminent threat of death. Where are you today? Are you doubting? Are you struggling? Are you vulnerable like the crowds to begin to just doubt? Doubt the whole thing. Throw out the whole thing. I hope not. How do we conquer it? My prayer is that I'll see the battle. Let me see what's happening. What's really going on? Where are the lines drawn? Where is Satan trying to probe in my own thinking or probe into the culture's thinking? Where, where am I getting rattled and addled in my own spirit? What do I need to cru- crucify before Christ? What do I need to like nail to the cross and say, Lord, take this away from me? Where do I, where do I need to fight back with truth? Reveal these things to me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. I want to see the battle so I can face it and declare victory against the devil and the world and my flesh. The new heavens and the new earth will bring in a new kingdom. And we live and we take the kingdom by violence in humility.